The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Peer Pressure. How well do you know your ADCs? Answers to key questions about antibody drug conjugates in non-small cell lung cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash PJD 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first annual Peer Pressure, How Well Do You Know Your ADCs? Uh, I am your chair, Mr. Benjamin Levy. I have surrendered my doctor badge to play the role. Um, so these are the rules. Uh, a little bit different here in terms of uh, how we shake up the CME world. Uh, we will be asking questions throughout. The panelists will be panelists first. They will then become, uh, um, uh, excuse me, the contestants will, will be participating and answering these questions and they'll become panelists so we can go over the content related to that question. The first person to hit the buzzer will have a chance to answer. Contestants who answer correctly will receive 100 points. Contestants who answer incorrectly will be deducted 100 points. And if a, can a, a contestant answers incorrectly, which will happen here, the other <laughs> contestants have a chance to steal 100 <laughs> points. Now, uh, I just want to say uh, a couple of things. These questions are not softballs. This is the pro team here. These are not the bench warmers, okay? <laughs> the only questions I have are split finger fastballs, sinkers, and most importantly, curveballs. There are a few, a few softballs there to keep it going. Point two I want to make is that there are no losers in lung cancer, okay? So irrespective of the outcome. In my mind, everyone up here except Steven is a winner, okay? <laughs> So here we go. Question one, which of the following classes of compounds? <laughs> What's happening? Okay. Okay. We, we need a little check check on the buzzers, but Dr. Johnson, let me just, okay. let me present the question first. Antimicrotubules, <laughs> toporisomerase inhibitors, DNA cleavage agents are alkylating agents. I'm going to go with C, C, DNA cleavage. That is incorrect. <laughs> Christine Lovely. That is correct. Yes. Christine Lovely. Give her 100 points. Subtract 100 points from Dr. Johnson. We're just warming up here, okay? If we can get a little buzzer action, quite, you know, we need some buzzer uh, uh, enhancement here. Okay, so uh, that is correct. The answer is alkylating agents. Christine Lovely gets 100 points. Dr. Johnson is at negative 100 points. All right, here we go. So we are going to open this up more to a panelist-like discussion. Um, clearly, these are the new kids on the block for lung cancer. These, is anti these are antibody drug conjugates. Uh, a little bit unique, maybe simple in their design. So, Dr. Love, you want to walk us through uh, uh, the components of an antibody drug conjugate? So, thank you, Dr. Levy. You're Mr. Welcome. Levy. Yes, Mr. Uh, Levy. <laughs> so, uh, this is a little bit of a complex slide, but I think three main components we've all come to know for antibody drug conjugates, which is the antibody portion itself that binds to the intended target on the cell surface the linker, which can either be cleavable or non-cleavable, and then the drug or and the payload component. And so each of these three different components is really important in thinking about the mechanism of action of how antibody drug conjugates works. In terms of the um, how specific ADCs work, we'll be talking about each of these three components through um, the course of this lecture as we talk about different ADCs. Yeah, so it, the, 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 the components seem quite simple. You have a monoclonal antibody that is going after a target. It has a linker and a payload. It seems simple, right? I mean, it's going after particular cell surface proteins. You're trying to selectively target the tumor. These drugs then get uh, internalized and released. And the payload, of course, uh, leads to cell death. Melissa, is it that simple? No, Ben, <clears throat> it's not that simple. That, that's the first thing that happens, but uh, there is also the bystander effect. Can we talk about that? Or you, Please. You, you, uh, the bystander effect is the, um, the way that the payload permeates into the cells next door that might not express the, uh, the tumor antigen or the target, um, but the cytotoxic effect is still realized by the cells there, so the neighboring cells can also be Im impacted. Yeah, and, and we do get this bystander effect. Um, uh, is there a rationale to, is there any data, Melissa, to suggest that there's immunogenicity here too, that these drugs may potentially harness the immune system in different ways than checkpoint inhibitors do? There may be opportunities not only to target cells through this 
antigen with the antibody, but to harness the immune system at the same time. Yeah, I think there are there is data, um, breast cancer cell lines, breast cancer patients that have been treated with IO and, and ADCs. Um, the uh, ADCC that we'll talk about as we go is a mechanism, uh, an immune mechanism that is also uh, uh, incorporated here. Yeah. And then, you know, Melissa and I have had many talks about this. Are these drugs truly targeted agents or are they just chemotherapies with, with, you know, high payloads that can get into the tumor? Because I think this is still an area of controversy as we're learning more and more about these antibody drug conjugates. I probably am on the uh, one end of the spectrum and I'll say they're chemo 2.0. Chemo 2.0. Okay. Um, uh, so I, I think there's a lot to learn about these drugs. I, the, the components are simple with the monoclonal antibody, the linker and the payload. And yes, we, we we have this idea, as, as demonstrated in this, this image, that these uh, antibodies will attach to an uh, antigen and then you're going to release the payload internally. Uh, but I think there's still more that we can learn about how these drugs truly work in non-small cell lung cancer. There is something that comes up over and over again about these drugs and it's bounced around in papers and in academic talks, and is that, that's the DAR. Stephen, you want to talk a little bit about the DAR for these drugs? Well, I think it's an important point that these are very intentionally designed molecules. These are not interchangeable. And even though some molecules may have the same target, may have similar antibodies, the linkers are different, the payloads are different, and those are very meaningful differences. The drug-to-antibody ratio is really how many molecules of the cytotoxic do you have per antibody? Higher molecular, higher DAR uh, will lead to maybe more efficacy, but maybe more toxicity. And so right. you really want to hit that sweet spot. And so. While PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors may be largely interchangeable, these really are not. Yeah. And Stephen, just a little bit about the linker. Not all linkers are the same, correct? Linker is the proprietary part. Yeah. And billions of dollars have been used to purchase companies based on linker technology. There are cleavable linkers, non-cleavable linkers. There are ones that really dissolve once it's internalized. There are others that really dissolve once it's taken up by a lysosome. And again, this is why some drugs may work better in some tumors and not in others. Right. Fascinating concepts, and, and really, I think we're just scratching the surface, number one, on how these drugs really work, not only in cell lines, mouse models, and clinically, uh, but, but toxicities we'll talk about, uh, as well as what patients we should look at them uh, in. Okay, so I think we've talked about this. ADCs are more than the sum of their, par uh, some of their parts. Um, you know, they are effective, as we'll learn in these pretreated patients, and this is where we've seen these drugs land initially in non-small cell lung cancers. The components vary, the linker varies, the payload varies. And then, as Melissa mentioned, this additive benefit or bystander effect. And then, again, understanding whether or not there's an opportunity to elicit immunogenicity through many different ways. I think these drugs have a tremendous amount of potential. Okay, are you ready for buzzers? I hope these buzzers work a little bit better this time. Maybe, oh, here we go, okay. All right, here we go. Hands on the buzzers. Oh, any, before we do hands on buzzers. <laughs> oh, it's killing us here. All right. Any questions? <laughs> okay, let's move on. We'll do questions at the end here for this section. Here we go. Hands ready? True, false. Hertz Stephen Liu, Hertz mutations generally occur with her to overexpression, true or false? False. That is correct. The answer is false. Give Stephen Liu 100 points. If we look at the scoreboard here, we can give him 100. <laughs> Dr. Liu gets it. Can we give Dr. Liu 100 points? That was the right answer. Totally rigged. Totally rigged. <laughs> if we could give Dr. Liu 100, there we go. Okay, there's another question here coming up. Another question. Buzzers, please. Ready? What was the response rate to autotrastism? Okay, Melissa, very forcefully, be careful. These have to be returned after the session. To Amazon? <laughs> what was the response rate to autotrastuzumab in patients harboring HER2 mutations in the phase two basket study by Lee et al.? A, 20%, B, 30%, C, 50%, uh, D, 60%. D, 60%. That is incorrect. Oh! I need the buzzer to work. Uh, okay. <laughs> Stephen Liu. Uh, that would be 50%. That is correct. Give Stephen Liu another 100 points. And a round of applause. Okay. 
So uh, this clearly is going to be the entry point uh, and when we talk about targeting HER2 and HER3, but focusing in on HER2 mutations, this is where the antibody drug conjugates have landed in non-small cell lung cancer and how we're starting to learn about these drugs. I think we need to remember, though, uh, that not all HER2 alterations are the same in lung cancer. And this gets very confusing in the community, and we're still learning about it as well. There's HER2 amplification, there's HER2 mutations, and there's HER2 overexpression. And these alterations don't necessarily overlap. And so, Christine, just how important is it to look at that next generation sequencing report when now we have trastuzumab drugs TCAN, uh, and we'll talk about that data, but this is getting confusing. I get a Foundation One report that shows HER2 over, her overexpression. Can I use trastuzumab drugs TCAN? And, and how do we teach uh, colleagues and community about looking closely at the NGS report? It's very important, I would say, as we've talked about at this conference, we're, we still underperform with EGFR mutations now two decades into testing for EGFR mutations. For HER2, you can have HER2 exon 20 insertions, you can have HER2 extracellular and juxtamembrane domain mutations, HER2 amplification, and not all of these different genomic variants are the same in terms of their sensitivity to different agents, and they've been tested differentially in um, trials. And so looking at the NGS report and, and having the availability to, to talk to somebody who's knowledgeable about NGS and molecular pathology, or somebody who thinks a lot about genomics in general to really parse out, you know, all not HER2 positive negative, like we used to think about in breast cancer, does not apply in lung cancer because we can have different variants detected. In the context of lung cancer right now, for these drugs, we're largely talking about HER2 mutations. Yeah, critical, I think. Critical, yeah. absolutely yeah. critical. Stephen, point. It's a, it's a little surprising because when you think of an antibody drug conjugate, we show these cartoons, it's an antibody, and you would expect the perfect biomarker is the antigen, it's protein expression. And as we're gonna see, it turns out that that's not always, in fact, that's rarely the case. And here, really, it is the mutation, not overexpression. Yeah, critical to look at your, your, your NGS and critical to teach community and academics that these are usually mutually exclusive. And we would think that these drugs would work in HER2 expression in lung cancer, but they don't. And not as well, at least, as they do in HER2 mutated lung cancer. And we'll talk about this. So, you know, looking back historically and, and trying to understand how we've exploited different drugs for HER2 alternate, altered non-small cell lung cancer, we've looked at tyrosine kinase inhibitors. They haven't worked all that well, but I think the, the monoclonal antibody drug conjugates have really changed the game for HER2 mutated lung cancer. We're going to talk a little bit about adotrastuzumab emtansine. We're also going to talk trastuzumab deruxtecan. Uh, clearly, there is a movement in this space. Uh, and so I've, I've stalled a little bit so that these are maybe a little bit more corrected on the buzzers. So, uh, so trastuzumab entensine, this is the first, the first HER2-directed ADC with a DM1 payload. Um, and we've looked at this uh, uh, initially, I think three years back, 2020. Uh, Bob Lee and colleagues looked at this drug at uh, 3.6 mg per kg every three weeks. And he had both a HER2 mutant cohort, uh, which was cohort one, and he had HER2 amplified as well. So I think like EGFR, initially the biomarker wasn't really ironed out yet, similar to her, you know, EGFR by fish or EGFR mutations. So I, this is the initial effort uh, to look at this. Um, and uh, this was one of the answers to the questions, uh, looking at the response rate to this drug in a highly pre-tutor group of patients. The response rate to TDM1 and HER2 mutated lung cancer was 50%. Uh, interestingly, the response rate was 55% in HER2 amplified patients. Again, I think we're still learning what the appropriate biomarker is for many of these antibody drug conjugates, and this is not just restricted uh, to the HER2 space. We'll learn this in other, uh, with other, with other uh, agents as well. Um, so just you know, backing up here a little bit, what were the initial impressions that, you know, before we had trastuzumab drugs TCAN, Melissa, were you using this drug? It was on the NCCN uh, before trastuzumab drugs TCAN came around, and it was an option to use. Do you have experience with the drug? Were you using it? I have uh, not used it. Um, I, I just want to make sure that all the audience understands that, uh, just want to reinforce that the question was asking about ADO and not TDXD that we're here to learn about. Yes. Uh, so just so, no. just so you don't walk away with the wrong, <laughs> with the wrong take home message. We but, can, go ahead. But we are talking about trastuzumab can tonight and, and, and how the response rate is 60%. So, the question was adotrastuzumab, <laughs> and the answer was 50% here, as you see, but, but we move on, we move on. Um, it's a drug I've given. <laughs> you know, I, I think that my experience clinically has been very similar. This is a well-tolerated drug, um, and I think that uh, its sort of very favorable tox profile is also associated with 
a response rate's a little lower than TDXD, and also a little bit of a shorter response. Yeah. Generally, I would expect to see resistance after four or five months. Uh, Christine, any, any um no additional yes. insights okay. yet. What's already been said? I have not used trastuzumab. I mean, I have not used adotrastuzumab, the TDM1 drug. I, I, I didn't get a chance to use it. Clearly, the game has changed now with trastuzumab drugs, TCAN. Okay. Hold on. Buzzer's ready. Now, do we need to load the buzzers? Are they ready? Okay. Buzzer's ready. Here we go. Another difficult question. This is, uh, I would say, a split finger fastball. What was the rate of all. <laughs> Stephen Liu. Rate of all grade ILD in Destiny Lung 2. Clearly did not know the answer. He just went in. 6%. Correct. Correct. 6%. He's figured out the strategy just to, to chime in and just go in blind. Um, so the answer is 6%. And I think this is an important question. I know that many of you in the audience don't like numbers as answers. Um, but, but this is important, I think. The, the, it's an unfair question. Uh, but there was a lot of concerns about ILD. There was a lot of concerns about ILD uh, in the uh, Destiny Lung 1 study, uh, and clearly this needed to be ironed out in the Destiny Lung 2. And just to remind people, this is trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um, this, again, has three components. It's got a humanized HER2-targeted monoclonal antibody, a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor payload, and then this cleavable linker. And as Stephen was mentioning before, this high DAR, this drug to, body, uh, drug to antibody ratio of eight to one, this has a high potency payload. Uh, and again, do you get this bystander anti-tumor effect that, that Melissa was mentioning? Um, the Destiny Lung 2 study was building on the Destiny Lung 1 study. Uh, and this was looking at two different doses of trastuzumab drugs decan and HER2 altered, excuse me, HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, Pre-treated group of patients, sorry, had received one line of prior anti-cancer therapy, so second line, randomized uh, two to one to receive either 5.4 mg per kg of trastuzumab drugs decan or 6.4. It was random two to one, so there was 100 patients in the 5.4 mg per kg and Six, uh, 50 patients in the 6.4 mg per kg. And the, the, uh, uh, the primary endpoint was objective response. And, and we saw here it was very similar from the adotrastuzumab data. The response rate was 53% in the 5.4 mg per kg, a little bit higher in the lower dose than we saw with the 6.4 mg per kg, the response rate being 43%. And we saw durability. I think that's really important. You know, the median duration of response not really reached uh, in the, in the 5.4 mg per kg. Uh, and so it's great that these drugs elicit responses, but the durability uh, is really important. Um, in terms of the toxicity of these agents, again, there was a lot of challenges with Destiny Lung 1, at least in the thought, when they looked at the 6.4 mg per kg, there was a high rate of ILD. And we're still trying to learn, and maybe we can talk about this, how this is happening and what you're doing in your practice. But the, uh, all, the, the rate of all grade AEs in the five, uh, for the ILD uh, for the 5.4 mg per kg was only 6%. And I think that's encouraging. Um, I'll turn it over to you guys before. How do we manage these patients who have ILD? Uh, what do we do? Melissa, what, do, what are we doing here for these patients? And are you frequently monitoring them? I think this is encouraging data to see, right? So how, how do you approach these types of patients? I think we've learned over time that, that uh, the ILD can be dose dependent. And so we may see a little bit of ILD, a little bit of ground glass opacification. It's called by the radiologist without patients having any symptoms. And so just really uh, uh, backing off, maybe dropping a dose or two and then rescanning is enough to sort of ameliorate a, a grade one toxicity. Now, Grade two, when with symptoms, um, is is a little bit more challenging. Certainly, would stop the dose uh, plus minus steroids in that case, um, and would think twice about restarting. Yeah. Um, and certainly for grade three hypoxia uh, admission um, for for treatment, then uh, that patient would have to be discontinued. And I, and I would say we, uh, we've learned, uh, we've, we manage toxicity in the lungs a lot, Ben. Right. Uh, we manage toxicity after radiation. We manage toxicity after TKIs. Where the breast cancer I investigators that are giving um, and her to, um, they don't necessarily have the same amount of attention to the lungs. So I wonder if the rate of ILD being higher um, speaks to the fact that they're not looking at the, they're not as accustomed to being mindful of right. that grade one tox right. that we are. 
Christine, you're a, a, a maven in the field internationally, an ALK. This is, you know, kind of, this is a targeted therapy, and, you know, we're seeing durability. What's your impression of the data overall uh, with these ADCs compared to some of the things you're doing in the lab, with, with, you know, looking at these drugs and looking how they perform in the clinic? How do you perceive this data? I mean, I think it's really exciting to have these drugs for HER2 mutant lung cancer. I, I think this is manageable in terms of the ILD. I've never had more than a grade one. I think I agree 100% with Melissa that we become very accustomed to looking at ground glass opacities in, on scans and really in, intercalating a multidisciplinary approach, um, not to minimize the toxicity when it appears, but I, I don't feel just uncomfortable with it um, or managing it when it, when it does appear. Uh, I think one thing we really need to, as a field approach, is, is how do we understand acquired resistance to antibody drug conjugates, which yeah. is, a, is a lot more complicated than thinking about acquired resistance to a TKI, for example. You know, when you think about multiple different components that could lead to acquired resistance, you could have target changing, you know, the, the linker and the ability to cleave the linker could change, the acquired resistance to the actual cytotoxic component, the payload itself, and you know, we don't really have good paradigms or model systems to study acquired resistance to an ADC, and, and I doubt it's going to be a genomic-based mechanism, something as simple as just doing NGS at the time of rebiopsy. So I think my bias for any ADC is that we really need to systematically think about how we're going to approach um, acquired resistance to these compounds. Such an important point. I mean, we are really beginning to learn how to use these drugs, but it's like the targeted therapy paradigm. What next? You know, we've got these drugs. What are the mechanisms of resistance? How do we identify them? And what do we do next? Is there an opportunity to sequence different ADCs the way we're doing some of this in the, in, in the genotype world? Stephen, uh, you have a HER2 mutated patient in clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've got an approval here post-chemo, IO, or post-chemo. Uh, are you pulling the lever on trastuzumab drug secant up front for your patients? Are you reserving it for the second line? It's a good question. On my board exams, uh -huh. uh, if I'm leading them to uh, FDA approval, I would use it after chemotherapy. But in my practice, this hits all the boxes I need yeah. to use it front and line. It's got a high response rate. I think it's well tolerated. Um, and I don't think we lose anything by giving this first. So. I would prefer to give this first line acknowledging that it's off-label. Yeah. All right. For the sake of time, this is a great discussion. I, I, I think we're all blessed that we finally have this ADC matching up with a particular target. One more point? I, I think that this is part of the reason why these programs are so important. We're moving fast and furious. And if you see someone with HER2 mutants, you're going to give TDXD, you know the drug, you do your diligence, you go to New England Journal of Medicine, pull the paper. It's a different study. Yeah. Different dose, different yeah. incidence. That's right. Where we saw 25% ILD, and we know with larger studies and more time that the rate is much lower, that the dose is different. So it's becoming more and more challenging for us to stay current. Yeah, uh, agreed. I mean, I got a little mixed up maybe six months ago or when this data came out. The, the actual approval came on the Destiny Lung 2 study, not the Destiny Lung 1. Uh, so I think that's important to remember. You're right, the ILD is much lower here, and that's how, we got, that's how we got this approval. Pretty safe drug to use. So we do have a few questions I want to hit from, uh, some good questions here um, about ILD. I'll, I'll just try to tackle two of them for the sake of time. Um, first question, if a HER2 mutation coexists with a high PDL one expression, should HER2 targeted therapy still be prioritized over I.O.? Melissa, I'll, I'll throw that one to you first. <laughs> it, it, it's really hard to say that I would give a, a PD-1 inhibitor to um, a patient with a HER2 mutation. I think in the past, before and HER2 was available, we were giving chemo IO to these patients, chemo plus minus IO, I would say, for, my, for the nihilists. Um, but I would, like Stephen, uh, be tempted to give an HER2 frontline. Okay. Um, one more question, then we have to move on. If a patient does develop ILD on an ADC, walk me through the management of these patients. Let's say it's grade two. Would you, uh, would you approach this therapeutically the same way you approach IO uh, toxicity? Would these patients get steroids? Would you hold the drug? W walk us through that. I don't think we really have the right... Paradigm. I think with grade two, you're supposed to hold it indefinitely with the ADC. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but but I think it may be a different approach here. I mean, there's grade two and there's grade two. Yeah. Uh, I I think um, a, a little bit of a cough uh, with findings on a scan uh, would would be a grade two tax, and I would give a short course of prednisone, maybe 40 uh, for five days, pulse, and then off. Um, shortness of breath, cough, hy God forbid, hypoxia. That's a longer course of steroids starting at 60, uh, uh, walking down slowly, uh, you know, 50, 40, 30 
20 over uh, you know, a, f a series of weeks, there I'm not going to be enthusiastic about rechallenge. Right. I think this also becomes medicine as an art and not a science sometimes, looking at the patient in your office and how they're doing. One more question I'll direct to Stephen is, is about the DAR. Do you think the higher DAR with uh, uh, TDXD versus TDM1 is responsible for better activity? Does it have anything to do with the DAR here? I mean, we don't have head, head comparisons. We have cross-trial comparisons. And the response rate was 50% uh, in both studies, uh, at least for the HER2 mutated patients. Uh, but the durability is better with yeah. TDXD. And I do think it has something to do with the DAR, but it's a lot of things. And the DAR is more than just more drug more efficacy, more toxicity, it really affects a lot of the other properties of these molecules. And so a lot goes into it, but, but the answer is, yeah, I do think it has something to do with yeah. it. Okay. Um, we'll move on here. Oh, 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 buzzers, buzzers. I think you're fine. Please be kind to the buzzers when you hit them. Please be kind, okay? Here we go. It's going to be fast action. This is kind of a softball backing off a little bit. Name that ADC. Kristen Lovely. I'm going to say... <laughs> One. One. Yes! Strutamab ah! <laughs> Durux Decan, the right answer. I had to take the HER3 part out of it, but clearly, <laughs> clearly this is Petrutamab Durux Decan. I mean, you can see the chemical structure of the payload and know that. Um, so, uh, I was let's ready give to it. steal. I was ready to steal. <laughs> The answers were protrudimab drug stecan, datapodimab drug stecan, tusaminimab reftanzine, or levimidimab awesome team. <laughs> <laughs> Not the right answer. Not the right answer. Okay. Okay, uh, I had to pause for a minute because I was like, what is number four? Yeah. It's an awesome ADC. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> So Petrutamab drug TCAN, this is a HER3DXD. Uh, it's an ADC with, again, the three components, a fully human anti-HER3 IgG1 monoclonal antibody. It's got a tetrapeptide-based cleavable linker and a toporisomerase 1 inhibitor. Here, again, we see the structure. I had to take out, of course, the human anti-HER3 that would have given this away in the question. Um, you know, whether HER3 is a target or not, this is where we'll start rolling out this theme with these ADCs. What is the appropriate target, and how did these drugs really work? We know that HER3 is expressed in 83% of non-small cell lung cancer tumors, but we will what we will find out, and spoiler alert, is that HER3 overexpression doesn't seem to predict response to these drugs, and I think we have to have a discussion about that. Just briefly, this is the data I think that was presented by Passiani at ASCO. I think this has been published, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, looking at patients specifically with EGFR mutations. So this is a highly pretreated group of EGFR mutant lung cancer patients receiving different doses of protrudimab drug stecan. Uh, and we will specifically look at the um, 5.6 mg per dose, there were 57 patients in this uh, uh, cohort, and these were highly pretreated group of patients. I would just draw your attention that the prior line of systemic therapy was four, which is the definition of pretreated. These patients were getting this drug at fifth line or beyond. I think that's extremely important. Um, and the objective response was 40% in this, uh, this 57 patients. Looking at two different columns here, um, there was looking at patients who had got prior TKI, plus or minus platinum-based chemo, and then probably the more relevant group for us, prior OC, then platinum-based chemotherapy, 44 patients, the objective response rate was 40%. And I think, as, as Stephen mentioned, the durability is, is really important. Again, to have a drug that you can offer as fifth line that can elicit a response 40% of patients and, and have a durable response of, of you know, seven to eight months is, is, is quite remarkable. Um, you know, it seems to work no matter what the mechanism of resistance was to the, uh, the, the initial EGFR TKI. And again, just showing highlighted objective response rate of 40% duration of seven months, the PFS of 8.2 months. I'm excited about this. Um, you know, the, the, the treatment emergent adverse events you're seeing here, we did see thrombocytopenia, neutropenia. I don't want to say these drugs aren't toxic. All of them have ways that, you know, that, that present new AEs that we haven't really looked at before. But, but nevertheless, um, a, a reasonably well-tolerated drug. Um, and the interstitial lung disease, only 5%. Um, so let's stop there. I mean, where does this drug go? I mean, I'm learning more at here what we're going to do with this drug. But Christine, in your practice, would this be, if this drug had approved, one that you would use post-OC? Would you wait post-OC then chemo? Um, how would you really leverage this, this compound? 
Well, I think, first of all, I'm going to share your enthusiasm for this drug. This is, to me, one of the, the most exciting compounds in lung cancer right now. And, and I hope we get to the question of IHC expression soon, because that's another really important issue. We have to think about ERBI biology. And I will freely admit, I really love EGFR, HER2, HER3 biology, so we could talk about that a lot. Um, I think this is a compound that could be combined with osimertinib in the first line. It could be used in the second line and beyond. Um, it could be used in HER2 mutant lung cancer. So the thing about HER3 is it's a, a, one of the ERB family receptors. It lacks kinase activity. It requires dimerization with HER2 or EGFR. So there's multiple contexts in which this could be used. Um, and I think we see great proof of principle with this initial trial. So. Yeah. I think, you know, uh, in addition, it, not only is this beautiful biology with respect to HER3 as a target, but also a, a great deployment of ADCs. Yeah, and I didn't show the slide for the sake of time, but again, HER3 overexpression didn't seem to predict response to this drug. And again, it's sort of making us fold back and think, okay, well, how are these drugs really working? And is this drug just going to be restricted to the EGFR mutant lung space? Melissa, your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, I, I think for the... For the time being, it is being developed in that area. But of course, uh, there were patients that uh, were e EGFR wild types who were included in that trial, and and we all and we know that EGFR is expressed um, in 60 to 70 percent of our lung cancer patients. And so I wonder if there might be uh, a way to uh, incorporate other groups of patients that aren't necessarily oncogene driven. Yeah. Stephen, your thoughts on this drug? Love it. It's really exciting. And part of that in the resistance mechanisms that you showed, you know, unlike a lot of the targets that we traditionally think of with sequencing, these are not mutually exclusive. And so you can see someone with a BRAF fusion, a RET fusion, a C797S mutation, and also responds to this drug. And it really fills a huge unmet need. OC is a wonderful drug. But in 2023, a PFS of a year and a half, it's not good enough. Right. And we really need to improve. And I think this will get us there. Can I just jump in and add? I mean, the thing is, when we look at genomic mechanisms resistance, they're all subclonal. But HER3 ex expression is likely going to be on all the EGFR mutant tumor cells. So that's the beauty of this sort of approach. Yeah. And I will say, if I, if, if I can also jump in, that we are in the practice of trying to find the mechanism of action, but probably the majority of the time we find one that is not yet successfully targeted. Right. Uh, and so this will fill that need. Okay, we we're... have to have the, the right frame of, of reference. This is not a drug that's going to replace OC. No. And when we think of how these, these are definitely targeted agents, but you're not talking about response rates of 80-90% with little toxicity, um, but there's definitely going to be a role for this drug. I agree. I'm excited. Um, we're at the halfway point, so I just want to catch everyone up on the scores who's falling at home. <laughs> Dr. Liu is at 300. Dr. Johnson at negative 200. You can't go to Final Jeopardy with a negative score, as you know. Uh, and Dr. Lovely at 200. I just want to make sure we're all following. And there is an important uh, prize at the end, so please don't leave. Hold on to your seats. Um, there was one question, and I, I don't know the answer to this, and I think it's, it is one that came from, from, from the audience. How does HER3 overexpression relate to EGFR resistance? I mean, is, is that something we know, or was, it, or was it just that, you know, this drug was just happenstance to be exploited in EGFR mutant lung cancer because maybe HER3 was overexpressed, maybe it wasn't. I mean, did, did, Stephen, your thoughts? Well, I think that it's, it's a really important point. As Christy mentioned, HER3 is not really known for its kinase activity. It's really heterodimerizing with other uh, receptors. But when we think about ADCs and how they work, the, the target doesn't really have to be doing anything. Right. It just needs to be there. Right. And so... Uh, these, it's a slightly different mechanism of action. That's why the predictive markers are a little trickier. Okay. Let's move on. Um, I think the buzzers need to be ready. Hands on the buzzers. Hands on the buzzers. No? You're, you're not going to hand? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so here we go. Are you ready? <laughs> Which one of the following is not a ligand for the trope 2 transmembrane glycoprotein. <laughs> I was going to hold his hand back. <laughs> is it? Now, everyone in the audience knows this question, including myself. Is it? This is the, the ligand, which is not a ligand for the trope 2 transmembrane glycoprotein. It's not, this is bold. Stephen Liu, please don't tell this me you know easy. this. Is it two? It is not. Subtract 100. <laughs> yes. 
anyone else, you got the opportunity. So it's not to, hold on, it's not, and clearly this is what we call a curveball, split finger, fastball. Is it Claudin 1, IGF 1, or Claudin 8, which is not a ligand? You've got a 33% chance. Someone should just, I mean, you're going to lose, the, you got nothing to lose, Melissa. You got nothing to lose. I'll say IGF. No, it is not IGF. <laughs> All right, 50-50 shot. Is I'm it? I'm holding. No. No, I don't, you, you don't have to lose anymore, right? I'm no, not going to lose more points, am I? No, you just lost another 100. <laughs> <laughs> Digging a bigger hole. Um, it's not fair. Th- this is an opportunity, Christine, to take the lead. You got a 50-50 shot. This is high stakes. This is tense What's for the me. What's the prize? The prize? I can't tell you. It's over here. I can't tell you. I cannot tell you. It's either. The, this, is, this is awesome. You've got either. Um, wait, wait, wait. Really it's either the one that is not is either Cyclin D1 or Claudin 8, no, no. which... No, no, no. It's either one or, oh. or four. One or four. Sorry, Claudin 1 or Claudin 8, which is... Can I take an audience poll? No. <laughs> Claudin 1 or Claudin 8. What is it? This is... It's you know the Claudin's like the back of your hand. I'm, I'm going to go for Claudin 8. It, that is correct. <laughs> 100 points. Everyone knows this. It's not Claudin 8. It's Claudin oh. 7 that's the ligand. Oh, Clearly... Give 100 points to Dr. Lovely. Just catching up everyone on the scores. <laughs> Dr. Lou, 200. Dr. Johnson, way in the doghouse at negative 300. And Dr. Lovely at 300. But I'm, I'm hoping for a comeback from you. I know that is I just want to say okay. that I gave a talk in the last session, and these two guys were studying. That's all <laughs> it's true. I did give Lovely a few answers before we got here. Trope two expression. One. and not, Go ahead. No, okay. I asked for answers. You okay. didn't give me any. So trope two, expression in non-small cell lung cancer. Again, this is starting to weave a theme here. Is trope two really a target or not? It is a transmembrane glo- glycoprotein. It's highly expressed not only in lung cancer, but other tumors. There has been some data to suggest that high tro- trope two expression is associated with poor prognosis. So maybe this is a therapeutic vulnerability uh, for these types of tumors. And we see some of the Kaplan-Meier curves in adenocarcinoma showing that high trope 2 may be performing worse than low trope 2. Um, Sacatuzumab gavitikin is a trope 2 ADC. It's the first one that was really looked at in lung cancer many years back and now is making a resurgence. Uh, once again, the three components, a monoclonal antibody, a linker, and then a SN38 cytotoxic payload. Same concept. The antibody binds to tro- the antibody seeks out and binds to trope two, and the drug gets internalized. The payload gets released. Um, this, the one study we have uh, uh, is is this study here looking at sacatuzumab gavitikin at two different doses, eight mg per kg or ten mg per kg, and a phase one two study, highly pretreated group of patients. Um, there were fifty four patients total, and you look at uh, the objective response rate here, not as high as we've seen from others, seventeen percent. Median duration, we're seeing some durable responses, but we just didn't see what we've seen more recently with some of the ADCs. But to be fair, there are new sets of data that are going to be exploiting this drug uh, and and more contemporary trials. And then the adverse event profile you're seeing here with with nausea, diarrhea, and fatigue. Again, I think some of these were were used to maybe a little bit different uh, than chemotherapy, however. It's pre-IO. This was pre-IO, exactly. So that's a great point, Melissa, because some think that maybe um, the IO, uh, patients having IO first may make ADCs better in the second line, um, and we didn't see, uh, you know, that meaningful response this year, but maybe things would change post-IO. And then we've got datapotamab direct CCAN. This is a a newer uh, antibody drug conjugate targeting trope 2, a fully humanized anti-trope 2 IgG1 monoclonal antibody, a tetrapeptide-based cleavable linker, and then, of course, this payload being a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. It's got a, uh, a high potency of payload. Uh, the optimal DAR is 4, uh, and a stable linker. Um, so if we look at the data here, there's been really two data sets um, with this drug. The first was a first-in-human study looking at single-agent Dato DX either at 4, 6, or 8 milligrams, and 50, 50, or 80 patients respectively. This is all in lung cancer. And obviously, with any first in human phase one, the primary endpoint was establishing uh, the MTD safety and tolerability. 
Um, this data uh, was presented, I think, two years ago and updated. Um, and, you know, depending on, didn't really matter what the dose was, the four, six, or eight milligram uh, per kilogram dose elicited a response rate in a highly pre-treated group of patients of anywhere from 20 to 25%. You can see the spider plots here. We see some of these responses were, were durable. Um, at, at least at the six milligram, we're seeing some of that trends in the four migs per kg and the eight migs per kg. Um, again, these are some of the toxicities we saw with the other Sacatuzumab gavitican, the other trope ADC, ADC. I think the issue here is the stomatitis, and that's different than what we're seeing in other ADCs. It's different than what we're seeing in other compounds that we use um, in, in lung cancer. And I want to bookmark that for the sake of time. Let's get back to that uh, stomatitis issue and how we're supposed to manage it in this patient population receiving this drug. The other study that's been looked at was presented at World Lung, the Tropion Lung 2 study. This is a complicated design. Uh, the bottom line is they were looking at DATO-DX in combination with immunotherapy, which is one of the first uh, efforts to do this, or in combination with immunotherapy plus platinum. And I think importantly in this study, there were a group of patients that were treatment naive, asking the question, how does this drug in combination with immunotherapy or platinum perform in the treatment naive <coughs> setting? Um, and I will just, again, the, 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 the safety is here. We're seeing this stomatitis signal uh, that we need to learn how to, how, to, how to manage. But, you know, very few people came off study. Uh, and if you look at uh, the, the serious treatment emergent adverse events uh, that were treatment related, you're looking at, at um, in cohorts one and two, only about 10%, in cohorts three through six, 15%. Not to say that this drug doesn't have toxicities. Many ADCs do. My experience with this drug has been, it's been reasonably well tolerated. We just need to iron out the uh, stomatitis issue. And then I think most importantly was this first-line cohort. This is the first report of ADCs in the first line in lung cancer, any ADC in the first line in lung cancer. Uh, and we're looking at both the doublet cohort, which was uh, datapotamab plus Pembro, or datapotamab plus Pembro plus platinum, either cisplatin or carboplatin. We're seeing object objective response rates north of 60% in the doublet. There's only 13 patients. And objective response rate of 50% in the triplet arm. And we're seeing the spider plots here. Um, so a lot of excitement here to use these drugs, not only as single agents and highly pre-treated group of patients, but combining them. And not only combining them in a highly pre-treated group of patients, but using them frontline. Can we use our best drugs first? Thoughts on this compound, guys. Uh, Melissa, you've led a lot of the efforts here with this drug. You've been front and center leading the trials. You have a tremendous amount of experience. Maybe comment first on the stomatitis and then just your general impressions of the drug thus far. Well, I, I think it's a new, uh, it's not a new adverse event for us, but it's not one that we have managed uh, rigorously in the past. And so using dexamethasone rinses, uh, uh, it's debatable how much that does, but certainly starting it before the patient starts uh, their therapy helps more than doing it in reaction uh, to the stomatitis when it develops. Um, all drugs have side effects. That, I say that to my patients all the time. And so, um, you know, if it, the, the uh, promise that tropion lung O2 holds is if there, with longer follow-up, there is synergy between the immunotherapy and the DATO-DXD, then, you know, we, we learn to manage stomatitis. I don't, I don't think it's a deal-breaker. Um, I, I think we, we need to see the tropion lung one results right. as well. And can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, so that's a, a randomized, uh, pivotal uh, randomized trial in the second-line setting uh, in which patients received DATO versus docetaxel. And so it's read, it's completed en enrollment, and we await the results maybe sometime this year. Um, and of course, uh, we expect that that will uh, become the new standard of care with a, with a positive uh, readout. Um, and then that makes uh, evaluation of this immunotherapy, chemotherapy combination more relevant. Right. Christine, your, your thoughts on this? Do these ADCs have a place first line? Um, you know, we're seeing response rates in a small number of patients, independent of PDL1, north of 50%. Uh, they do carry a different toxicity. Is there room to use these drugs first line, or are we just not there yet? So I have no experience with this drug because we did not have the trial. Um, Melissa's amazing, and she has every study and does such a wonderful <laughs> job with all of them. Um, so huge kudos to her. I, I mean, even though I'm losing by 300. <laughs> Her score amazing. certainly doesn't amazing. suggest that. Amazing. Everybody knows Melissa Johnson is amazing. Um, to be honest, the first line 
systemic therapy for advanced lung cancer is a very crowded space right now, and it, I really struggle to know what regimens to pick. Right. Um, and um, I think we could debate this for another three days in Santa Monica, hopefully with better weather if we wanted to. Um, but I mean, is there a place? Yes. How do we sequence these or what's the right patient to use? Uh, I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah, I think it's, it's to be determined. Stephen, your thoughts on, on the efficacy, where this drug goes, um, you're, if you have experience with ADCs in general that are troped, I mean, wh where do we go from here? What do you think about this? I think the toxicity is not insurmountable. It is a different toxicity. I think it's important that we prepare patients for it. We think of strategies to be proactive in minimizing it. But I think the efficacy are exciting. And in the frontline space, if there is the potential for increasing immunogenicity and immune-related responses, then maybe it does improve long-term durability. So I think it's, it's a small study. These were expertly presented in Vienna by, by Dr. Levy. Um, and I think it's very exciting, but we need a little more data. So, you know, backing up here with Petrutamab, Deruxtecan, with Datapotamab, Sacatuzumab, the biomarker search goes on. Um, data that I didn't share for the sake of time is that this drug doesn't seem to care what the trope 2 expression is in a tumor. I mean, trope 2 expression does not predict outcome. Where do we go with biomarkers here? Melissa, what do we do? We've talked about this before outside of this room about, like, is it good that it's a come-one, come-all approach, or do we need better refinement on selecting our patients for these drugs? And I'm opening this up to both the Petrutamab drugs, TCAN, and Datapotamab drugs. Well, I, th I, think, uh, we, I think we were humbled by HER2, that we, th we thought that was a targeted drug, and lo and behold, it works in HER2 low breast cancer as well as uh, HER2 overexpressing breast cancer. Um, so it suggests that maybe you don't need a lot of the target. Um, so that maybe there is a component of targeting here uh, that we haven't flushed out. On the other hand, um, you know, we, these, are, these are therapies that are taking our, our ability to give chemotherapy hopefully to a new level. And so I, it, there's potential for it, even if it is an, an unselected uh, therapy. Yeah. Is there an opportunity, I think you mentioned this, would you have equipoise ever in a patient to sequence these ADCs? You start with a trope 2 ADC, and if that's, this is a question uh, from the audience, would you feel comfortable if these both of these drugs were approved, given there's different targets and potential mechanisms of action, would you start with datapotamab drug seeking and then sequence them to another ADC? Or is that just moving the field backwards? I mean, it, it's true that in the clinical trials, uh, if you've had one uh, ADC with an exotecan payload, then you're not allowed to get another. So we don't know the answer to the question. Uh, doctors will try it for yeah. sure. But you sort of wonder, is it is it sort of like giving, you know, uh, tax, uh, paclitaxel and then docetaxel. We do it because we did it in the past because we didn't have options. So, you know, but what about, I, I am sort of intrigued by the idea of one dato uh, uh, or one trope 2 ADC followed by another. Right. Uh, their payloads are different. What would that look like if you don't need a whole lot of the, of the target? You know, maybe you can do that. Yeah. We'll see. Um, a lot of question marks, and we've talked about this also outside of this room, about CNS activity of these mm -hmm. drugs, and we don't have that data. Uh, Stephen, your thoughts on could we leverage these drugs, and what do we need to do to show that these drugs may be active in the CNS? And, you know, given that many of these drugs are going to be looked at in genotype-driven cancers, you know, I didn't have time to show, but datapotamab drugs, TCAN, and others are being looked at specifically in, in genetic alterations in studies. Yeah. Um, wh what do we need to see here? How do we need to design that trial? I mean, it needs to be looked at for sure, but I agree with Melissa. This has been very humbling because when you look at the structure of this molecule, its size, everything we know about CNS penetrant drugs, this drug should not work in the brain. But these drugs do work in the brain. We learned from our breast cancer colleagues that TDXD does have CNS efficacy in yeah. the brain nets, and I would not have predicted that. So we can't make assumptions here and we just need to gather data. Yeah, I was um, either fortunately or unfortunately covering the floors uh, inpatient and, and had to cover a few breast cancer patients, which is scary for me. Um, but we were able to transition a patient to outpatient, and I was still covering her because the breast cancer colleagues were in San Antonio, and we gave her uh, HER3-DX, I mean, the protrudimab, excuse me, trastuzumab drug CCAN for leptomeningeal disease, and I was blown away at how well this drug works in the CNS, specifically for breast cancer patients. And we just need to hopefully find that 
type of evidence. Hard for me to believe that it wouldn't work in a CNS for a lung cancer patient while it's working in, uh, and all this data is being generated uh, in, in, in breast cancer as well. I mean, um, ben, I think, you know, anyone who was here yesterday morning, there was a robust conversation about if a drug is active, systemically, it's going to be active in the CNS. Yeah. So that this has been a big theme throughout this conversation and a big source of debate. So maybe our assumptions, it has to be, quote, small molecule to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, need to be thrown out the window. Yeah. One more question about toxicity, and, and maybe I'll throw this back to um, Melissa. Ocular toxicity with TROPE 2 ADC, are you seeing that? I mean, I haven't seen a lot of it. We talked about this earlier. Mm -hmm. How are you managing that? How are you looking out for the, all these patients get an ophthalmologist? How does this... How do you do this in your practice? In the context of the trials, yes, they all have ophthalmologic care, and I've been grateful. I've been humbled also by my lack of understanding of eye drops, but but there are many different types that you can give, and the ophthalmologists tell me each time what to give, just like the dermatologists tell me what cream to give. So, But it is an ocular surface toxicity that has been described, and I suppose relates to the exotecan, but uh, this is a lesser lesser understood toxicity, yeah. I think. I haven't seen it a whole lot. Okay, Stephen, your thoughts? Uh, it's a new toxicity for some of us, but we can't shy away from toxicity. You know, all of us are internists first. And, you know, when we were giving rosaletinib, we had to learn how to give uh, insulin and treat diabetes again. When we gave immunotherapy, we had to become rheumatologists and endocrinologists. And so, you know, we can't become ophthalmologists, but you know, hopefully we can learn to manage these a bit more. Okay. We've got about nine minutes. We, this is our last section. I would ask everyone, this is a double point question here. Double point question. <laughs> Melissa, it won't get you out of the hole, but it'll make you a little <laughs> bit more respectable. All right. So we're going to move on here. Buzzer's ready. I would ask that you please wait for me to finish the entire question. Okay. I, I just want, this is important. We're going to go to this question and... Um, I would also ask you to pay attention to how the question is crafted so that it helps you better craft your answer. Here we go. I was originally discovered in 1965 by Paul Gold and Samuel Freeman, and I've recently emerged as a potential therapeutic target for the antibody drug conjugate SAR408071. Uh, Melissa. CCAM5. That is not the form of a question. This is a Jeopardy. You didn't say that. Come on. You did not say that. Give I wanted you to Give look. To her. Okay, you're down 300. Give her Give 200. Her. But it's good. It's good. Okay. Help a sister out. I was trying to. I wasn't going to say Jeopardy. I was just like, look at it. Should have been what is CCAM5. Uh, but I'll take it, Melissa. Okay. I'll take it. Thanks, man. The knowledge is impressive. Huge. So CCAM. <laughs> So let's, let's move on. You know, they're, they're, for, the for, the, for the sake of time, I mean, clearly HER2 ADCs, HER3 ADCs, and TROPE2 ADCs are the ones that we're hearing about over and over again. Um, but there are others that are coming and emerging that are, that are extremely important. We'll focus on two of these. Uh, one is uh, tuzumumab, reftansine, uh, which was the question was about. The other is telecetuzumab. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, I only know this because I, I try to read about this space, but the CCAM5 uh, target is CEA. That is the original CEA that colon cancer uh, oncologists follow and that yeah. lung cancer uh, doctors should not follow, but they do sometimes. Um, so it's, it's really intriguing. So uh, this is tusimidumab, uh, reftansine. It's an ADC that selectively targets CCAM5-expressing tumors. Similar idea here, a humanized antibody, a cytotoxic agent, and then a linker. Um, the TUSA data that we have so far was presented at ASCO a few years ago. It was an oral session. Um, and uh, specifically, uh, phase one, two study looking at this agent and non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer in both high expressors defined by CCAM5 2 plus and 50% of the cells or moderate expressors that was defined as CCAM5 2 plus and 1 to 50. Talk about a complex biomarker. Uh, and how we iron this out. And it seemed like in the 64 patients that were high expressors, and this is, again, a, a pre-treated group of patients, the objective response rate was 20%. We didn't see that. So maybe this is in the moderate expressors. Maybe this is an appropriate biomarker. Maybe this is the first time we'll have an enriched strategy where high CCAM expression, at least based on this limited data, it looks like the response rates are higher in the high expressors versus the moderate expressors. moderate expressors. And then if you look at um, the, the uh, treatment emergent adverse events of this drug, 
Here we start to see some interesting things, these coronal AEs, these keratopathies that are quite uh, frequent. I mean, 40% of patients have these keratopathies. I haven't experienced this. I haven't used this drug. I don't know if you have either, but you really have to partner with your ophthalmologist. And I think we all can agree, ophthalmologists these days are like unicorns. Uh, they're just very difficult to find and partner with and help you in uh, taking care of patients. Um, we see the other uh, toxicities here as well, peripheral neuropathy, diarrhea, decreased appetite. Um, any experience with this drug at all? Melissa, any comments on it? Just, I, I think uh, I learned in fellowship that uh, you can't mess with cancer patients' eyes. Yeah. And so, it, you know, the, this, this is pretty significant. I, don't, I, I believe that at, since that picture was taken, there are, again, a lot of eye drops that are being used to help uh, patients that are getting this drug uh, tolerate it much better. And it does seem to be reversible, the toxicity, um, after you stop the drug. Um, so it it uh, it doesn't happen in all patients either, as you can see from um, from, uh, from this slide. Stephen, uh, prophylaxis hasn't really been effective. It's really recognition, and so when you're giving a drug like this, it's important that you prepare patients, caregivers, um, really know what to look out for. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, partner with the ophthalmologist when you can. Yeah, it takes a village, right? I mean, this is what lung cancer is these days. It's not just us doing it. It's, it's our nurse practitioners, it's our nurse navigators, and it's the subspecialists who are helping guiding these patients along. It's become incredibly complex, but I think that allows us or forces us to put everybody on the same team so that we can get these patients through treatment, both in terms of long-term outcome, making sure they're doing well, but also in terms that they're tolerating. A little, a little satisfying to see an ADC whose biomarker will be protein expression. Yeah, Give yeah, us no, one finally. of these. And yeah, I, 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 and for the sake of time, we're not able to go through this, but clearly their strategy moving forward is doing, looking at this in a high CCAM expression uh, patient population. And then finally, just MET. Uh, you know, MET is kind of like HER2. MET alterations are not all the same. You've got MET overexpression. You've got MET amplification. And then obviously what's important to us is the MET exon 14 skipping uh, mutations, but they don't overlap. And just similar, it's just sort of the same narrative and theme in HER2. And it forces us to really look at that NGS very carefully. And, you know, clearly there's different ways to look at MET. There's looking at MET upfront, MET exon 14 skipping. There's looking at MET overexpression or amplification in the EGFR resistance space. Um, so we've got a lot to learn about the MET biomarker. Uh, Chalicetuzumab vidotin, it's a MET ADC. I have not used this drug, but it looks quite exciting given that we are seeing MET amplification and MET overexpression in a variety of tumors. Um, and so we've, we've got the components here that we normally see. Um, Kind of a complicated study here, um, looking at this drug uh, and multiple different patient populations. So they were looking at it, one, in a non-squamous EGFR mutant patient population, and then dividing those patients up to both high CMET, CMET high uh, versus CMET intermediate, and that's just with an IHC. And then uh, looking at non-squamous non-EGFR and looking at CMET high and CMET indeterminate, uh, and looking at a dose of 1.9 mg per kg. Um, and, and this is the, the, the waterfall plot. And I'll just point you to the bottom because this is a lot of stuff going on. I hate showing slides that have a lot of stuff going on and then say there's a lot of stuff going on. But there is, if you look at the non-squame EGFR wild type, these were non-EGFR mutant you know, wild type patients that had high CMET that were highly pre-treated. The response rate was you know, high, it was 53%. We didn't see that in the EGFR mutant patient population, either in the high or the intermediate. So it'd be interesting to see where this drug goes. I mean, we're trying to learn desperately about MET and where it fits in and when we look at it in the treatment naive and the refractory space. Um, so just food for thought on, on, on you know, other ADCs that are coming in. Um, so we've got 90 seconds here. And so I just want to take some parting shots uh, about you know, these drugs, your impression, where we're heading, how do, we, you know, how do we move the field forward? And Stephen, I'll start with you. you know, what's the next step here with these drugs? Yeah, I really think it's trying to understand resistance. These drugs have exciting activity, but we don't exactly know how they work, and they may not work the same in every patient. But I think understanding resistance is going to tell us best how to sequence these. Yeah. Melissa? Yeah, I'll take the, uh, we need to understand the synergy with immunotherapy, with, uh, to understand where these will uh, fit in our treatment armamentarium. And I'll take biomarkers. I think we use IHC because we're comfortable with it. It's practical, but it is really a very crude assessment of a, a protein. You know, just a protein level on a, on a membrane is 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 a very um, 
imprecise measurement of the activity of that protein, the positive and negative regulators might be at play for that, that protein. So we really need a, a better way to look at these actual targets for these ADCs moving beyond IHC alone. Yeah, and I, I would just add on to that. I, I'm interested in how these drugs specifically alert, uh, uh, specifically uh, perform in certain genotype patients, not just EGFR, but other alterations, and are there differences? I think we've come a long way with genotype-directed therapies and targeted therapies, uh, but what to do next always remains a challenge. Steve and I, you and I had a conversation about brain mets and how we're going to manage those patients. but. It's an unmet need. And then I would say looking at this in earlier stages, right? These drugs always start out in stage four, but looking at them in earlier stages, looking at that potentially in the neoadjuvant space, looking at them potentially in the consolidative space, post-chemo RADS, I think the sky's the limit. It's a very exciting time. And I want to thank everyone for coming. This concludes our ADC, first peer pressure ADC. And, and big thanks to Dr. Levy for being yes. such a fantastic host. Well, thank you. But it's Mr. Levy. Mr. Levy. I just want, this is the trophy presentation. (laughs) Christy Lovely, congratulations, everybody. Fantastic job. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your evening. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash PJD 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated.